2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12 today. The last three weeks have been a study of eschatology. And we've hit that word a couple times. Eschatology means the study of last things. So when you hear eschatology, you need to think the end of the world. That's what we hear eschatology, we think end of the world. Paul had said at the start of chapter 2, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together, that's the end of the world. That's the coming of the Lord. And we've been running through some very basic building blocks of what the Bible prophesies about the end of the world. There are a lot of details, but we've been trying to really nail down the basics. The most basic thing, number one, Jesus Christ is coming to establish his kingdom. Jesus is going to return. Before that, Bible says there will be seven years of tribulation, trouble, testing, the worst seven years the world has ever known while God pours out his wrath on the world. Prior to that, so working our way backwards, we have what's called the rapture, which is Latin for a Greek word that means to be caught up or to be snatched up, where the Lord will gather his church together. And we've talked about that at length. And what we saw in the last couple weeks is that the next sign after the rapture, the next big thing that will happen, the thing that Paul was able to point out and say, you know you're not in that tribulation because this hasn't happened yet, is the rise of the Antichrist. We talked about who that is. He is a world ruler who will rise to power. He is a false god and will set up worship of himself in God's temple. And last week, we talked about what's taking so long. If Satan is working to raise up this evil world ruler, why hasn't he done so yet? And we discussed that God is, in fact, restraining the hand of Satan. And we talked specifically, the Holy Spirit working through his church is restraining the work of the enemy until God decides that the time is right. And these last verses here, as we complete this section in 2 Thessalonians about eschatology, and we spent some time in 1 Thessalonians there as well. Paul and Silas and Timothy, the authors of this letter, are going to explain how it is that the world would go after a guy like that. We talked about the Antichrist, how evil, how wicked he is. He's going to be a violent man. He's going to be a sensuous man. He's going to consolidate power. He's going to, remember, trample the whole world. Why would people go after a guy like that? And this is what is going to be explained today. And it boils down to a spiritual deception that is going to fall upon the whole world. Spiritual deception is real. And if we deny the possibility of spiritual deception, we don't want to talk about Satan because it's embarrassing. We don't want to include the possibility that there is evil at work that we cannot see. Then we're going to fall prey to that same deception. Really, this whole chapter, from chapter 2 at the beginning to the end, is all about resisting deception. There were false teachers that had come in, maybe, and had convinced the Thessalonians that, no, you missed it, and you're in the day of the Lord. And so Paul runs through all these things that have not happened, that they know why they're not in the day of the Lord. And now he's going to talk about the deception that is coming. He's going to talk next week about how you know that the Lord is with you and you do not need to be afraid. We talked about the great apostasy, the great rebellion that is going to come upon the world. Deception. And we are not in these final days yet. That's been another big point of this chapter. But we ourselves can look at the world around us and see 
that, as Paul says, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Lawlessness is increasing. The deception of the enemy is always at work. And as we look at the world around us, it should be obvious, unfortunately, how the world might bow to Antichrist when he comes. And we're going to look not just at what's going to happen at the end, but we're going to take some time to examine with sobriety the deception that is already at work today. And I hope that it will, as we said in our prayer this morning, put a little bit of steel in our spine to face that darkness and to stand up as the salt and the light that God has called us to be. Not just for our own sake, but for the sake of those that we were sent to save who have rejected the gospel so far and will be vulnerable to this on that day. So I hope this sets us on fire a little bit. Let's go ahead and read the whole section, verses 9 through 12. The coming of the lawless one, that is the Antichrist, is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness." So we discussed the Antichrist, we discussed the restrainer, that God is restraining the Antichrist, and now Paul, Silas, and Timothy explain what that removal of restraint is going to look like, what the rise of the Antichrist will be like. And he uses this word here, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. The Greek word there is energia, is where we get the word energy or energy from. It means activity, it can mean influence, it can mean working, it can mean power even. Satan's energia, his activity in the world. So he's making clear this is not just another political leader. This is not just another nation rising. This is Satan himself backing the rise of this man of lawlessness. Satan's influence is going to drive this. And he says specifically, it will be with power, And false signs and wonders. Power, false signs and wonders. It is a well-established fact in Scripture, and it says it here too, that the devil will use miracles to deceive the world when the Antichrist rises. He will use, as he says, false signs and wonders. Will you turn with me to Revelation chapter 13? We looked at this passage at length a few weeks ago, describing the rise of the, the beast, remember? The beast that came up out of the sea that was the Antichrist and had the power of the dragon. And we talked about the symbols that the Bible uses to describe these things. But there's actually another beast in this passage. And it is connected to what Paul is talking about here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So this is Revelation 13. I'm going to read verses 11 through 15 here. So right after the rise of the Antichrist. Verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. So it looks like a lamb. Jesus Christ is the lamb of God, right? But it speaks like a dragon who is Satan. So it's, it's like the, the enemy will clothe himself in, as an angel of light, right? Everything looks great, but the words coming out of his mouth, they're satanic, dragonish words. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Here it is. It performs great signs, 
even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So we have the great beast, who is the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. Now we have this other beast, the false prophet, as he is usually called. It's an appropriate title for him. And we think, how could the whole world go after a man who's going to trample down everybody? Because this second beast, this false prophet, will be there working miraculous signs to deceive people. talks about him calling down fire from heaven. They're going to create an image of this Antichrist. That image will even begin to speak. I'm not even quite sure I understand what that means. But it's going to trick everyone. He's going to dazzle with signs and wonders, which is what Paul says here back in our, our passage. He says, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, the dragon, with all power and false signs and wonders. And that word for false, I want to clarify something here. The word is pseudos. It's where we get word like pseudonym, right? It means a lie or a deception or a false thing. Now, by describing these things, signs and wonders and the power as well, the Greek could apply that word to all three of them, that these are not sleight of hand tricks, It's not a false sign as in smoke and mirrors and made it look like something was going on. The idea is that these are real miracles, signs, and wonders that are pointing to a lie. That's what makes them false signs and wonders. In the Bible, we judge miracles by the glory they give to God, right? Even when Jesus, every time he did a miracle, said, and they gave glory to God. That's how we determine if a work is legitimate or not. And we say, is it possible for Satan to perform miracles? It certainly is. We see this in the book of Exodus. Moses turns the staff into a serpent. The magicians walk right up, don't miss a beat, and they turn their staffs into serpents. Moses turned the water into blood. They turned the water into blood. Until they reached a point where they realized, hold on, Moses just did something that we don't know how to do. That's beyond. And then the magicians start to tell Pharaoh, Pharaoh, you need to tap out here, man. We don't know what he's doing. We can't do that. And... Of course, Moses' serpent ate their serpents and trying to let the whole world know, yeah, Satan's got a little bit of power, but God is God, right? You know, people want to talk about the, the witches and the spiritists who have seen incredible things where we all sat and chanted and the table lifted off the ground two or three inches and like, oh, my God created the world. <laughs> my God raises the dead. My God cleanses lepers. My God opens the eyes of the blind and you can lift up a table. Congratulations, guys. You did, you did great. But they are false signs and wonders. And I also want to give a small encouragement here. This passage has been used by many to say, therefore, the church should never seek anything supernatural. We should not pray for healing. We should not seek miracles because it might be a false pseudo-miracle. That is not the instruction the Bible gives us. The Bible tells us the possibility of those things, but we read back in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, what did he say? Test all things. In Deuteronomy 13, God told the children of Israel, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, so the miracle happens, and if he says, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. 
For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So the Lord didn't say, I don't want any miracles going on in my people. He says, you don't trust just the miracle. You listen to the words that are coming out of their mouth. Paul would say in Galatians, if an angel comes and proclaims another gospel to you, that angel is anathema. He's accursed. So we want to be on guard against weird things. People are, well, you know, there's crazy stuff going on. Listen, if it's not giving glory to Jesus Christ, we're not interested in it. But if it is giving glory to Jesus Christ, I'm all for it. But all of this that we struggle today, it all pales in comparison to what's going to happen on that day. We describe, or it describes here how the false prophet is given authority and given power to work to call down fire from heaven. And people are going to run after him. See, how could an atheist world culture start worshiping this man? Well, he's going to start calling down fire from heaven. He's going to give life to this image that people have made. And Beyond that, this deception, right? He calls it a wicked deception in verse 10. It's a lie. And you, you can see, it's a chilling study to do, how Satan has already begun to plant the seeds of this deception around the world. And all these different religions and cultures have this mysterious figure that someday will come and, and be everything that we're looking for. You, you've got the Hindu and, and Buddhist cultures that are always looking for someone like the Dalai Lama. It's the re resurrection of the, the avatar of whatever god they choose. You've got the, the Nietzschean German idea of the Ubermensch, right? That we're waiting for some man who is going to lead us forward into our new tomorrow and leave behind who God really is. In Islam, you've got the predictions of the Mahdi who's coming. And that, that's a horrifying study to do as well. That they're looking for a man who's going to come and take their empire around the world. And that he's going to be foretold by signs and wonders. And he's going to strike down the Jews. And we read the book of Revelation and like, you're waiting for the wrong Messiah. Mark 13.22 says that false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. It's a wicked deception. And the world is going to fall for it. Satan is going to have a push, and there's going to be miracles and signs and wonders and lies and deception, and everyone, it says, is going to go after the beast, because God will have stopped restraining him. And this is what is striking. We saw this in verse 9, that the coming of the lawless one is by the energia of Satan. But in verse 11, it says that God sends them a strong delusion. That word, strong delusion, two Greek words, is energion planes. Planes means deceptive, but by strong delusion, energion. It's the same word that is used to describe what Satan is doing in verse 9. God's energia, God's activity, God's influence. And it is a strong delusion, but you miss the parallel that Paul and Silas and Timothy give us in verses 9 and 11. God himself will send deception on the world. It's not just Satan's work. It is God who is permitting and causing this to happen, that he can condemn those who are going to worship the Antichrist. Now, this is off-putting to us, isn't it? The idea that God would send deception on the world. So isn't God true? And Satan, John 8, says Satan is the father of lies. So how could God allow this to happen? Well, this is where a, a full picture of Scripture is needed, because there are many instances in the Bible of God allowing 
somebody to be deceived or to be hardened in their lie that they believe so that he can execute his judgment. He permits Satan to go out and confirm these people and what they've done. And in that sense, it is his will that these things happen. The clearest example, if you'll turn with me uh, to 1 Kings chapter 22. This is a remarkable story. Not just because of what we're going to read today, but we get a, a, a glimpse into heaven and what goes on when God is planning things like this. And I think this story that we're going to read, 1 Kings 22, is a, a, an excellent illustration of what Paul is talking about here. That God is going to send a delusion upon the world. That God is going to be working and Satan also is going to be working. This is 1 Kings 22. I'm going to read verses 19 through 23. This is the prophet Micaiah has been called to say what the word of the Lord is for whether Ahab and Jehoshaphat should go to battle together. And all three or four hundred of Ahab's prophets are saying, yes, you should go. But here we get Micaiah brought up out of the prison cell, and this is what he says. Hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven, those are angels, standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab? that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead. And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? He said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets, the Lord has declared disaster for you. So Ahab had prophets, hundreds of prophets that would prophesy for him. The kings, this was actually the primary function of a prophet in those days, was to attend the king and to give the word of the Lord for different situations. And Micaiah comes up and says, the Lord specifically sent an angel to trick your prophets into thinking all the omens and all the word was good. But God has done this because he is ready to judge you for the things that you have done, for stealing Naboth's vineyard and putting him to death, and for your persecution of the prophets, and for raising up altars to Baal and allowing your wife Jezebel to run unchecked. God is ready to judge you, and he's going to judge you by sending you to Ramoth Gilead to die in battle. And he knows that the way to get you there is to get your prophets to tell you everything is just fine. So God permitted this spirit to be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. This is as close to what Paul is describing as, as we can get. That God is going to allow the deception because he is ready to pour out his wrath and judgment upon the world. By allowing them to be deceived, God will remove his restraining hand. He will remove the whisper of the Holy Spirit that is constantly at work to draw all men to Christ and to regenerate them. Revelation 17, 17 says that God has given it to the hearts of the kings to go after the Antichrist. That it is the Lord's will. Right now, God is restraining evil partly by keeping the world from the ultimate deception. People will go after the enemy. People will go after false rulers and false gods, but it's never everybody. And the gospel is always penetrating and pulling people out of these situations. But there will come a day where God is going to stop doing that. He's going to allow everyone to be deceived. And you say, well, that's not fair. God is under no obligation to give anybody a second or third or fourth chance. God is justified in his judgment the moment that you sin. 
But God is merciful. But someday he will allow this deception to come. And what that means is God will allow people to experience the full temptation that Satan can bring without any mitigating influence. Like it says in Romans 1, God gave them over to the lust of their flesh. He gave them over to worship the creature rather than the creator. Psalm 81 has a verse where the Lord says, I will give you over to your sin. God does this today in small doses. We see this in people's lives. He's even done it in national doses. We look at the example we've been using over and over, but we look at something like Nazi Germany, which was such a strange thing that came out of nowhere and then fizzled almost immediately. And we say, what happened? A nation was deceived. But soon that will be worldwide. Can you imagine something like that happening worldwide? As Isaiah 29.10, talking to the children of Israel before the destruction by Babylon, he says, The Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, O prophets, and covered your heads, O seers. That's how God is going to usher in the day of the Lord. The rapture will remove the church, the rebellion, the apostasy will have happened, and God is going to remove his restraint like he did with Pharaoh. Where it said, Pharaoh hardened his heart, hardened his heart, hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. This is comforting for us because it tells us that the end of the world is not in Satan's hands. It's not as though Satan is going to someday finally get it to work. God is going to allow him to bring that tribulation upon the world. And then God will begin to pour out his wrath. He will allow hearts to harden. The mystery of lawlessness is at work, but God will allow that mystery to go forward with miraculous power that's going to deceive everyone. Now, this passage also explains why. Why will God permit this? Upon whom is this deception going to come? Because we know that there will be many that will be saved out of that great tribulation. It says that a number that no one can number is going to come out of that. But it tells us who is susceptible to this kind of deception and who will receive this judgment, this removal of restraint. It says, for those who refused to love the truth and be saved. Those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Those who reject the gospel will be deceived. This is important to know. God is not here permitting hapless wood saints to be deceived. If only I'd ever heard the gospel, I would have gotten saved. God's like, ah, well, sorry, rapture happened. You're going to be deceived. No, 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 no. He is sending wrath upon those who have chosen wrath by rejecting his grace. The gospel comes and it says, Jesus Christ will bear the wrath of God for you. And people say, no, I'll bear the wrath myself. And God says, then so be it. And the thing to note, too, is God always warns of the coming deception. And God sent a lying spirit to Ahab, but he also sent Micaiah to tell him there was a lying spirit. God is always so merciful, and he's so gracious, and he's so loving. He's always putting out that last possibility of salvation. God is right now warning the world. I'm warning you right now that someday there will be a deception that will come upon the world that will be unstoppable. Right now, we can say, oh, maybe later I'll get saved. It's not always going to be so easy. It's going to be line in the sand time. This is why our appeal is so important as Christians. Because 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's why 2 Peter tells us that's what's taken so long. Why isn't God just coming back and doing it? Because God's like, because there are still people that might be saved. There are still cultures that haven't even heard the name of Jesus yet. And every generation, a new group of people gets born that might be saved. 
This is why I believe one of this, this passage is explained by so many places in Scripture that talk about the gospel has got to be preached to all flesh first. Matthew 24, 14, Jesus said, The gospel must be proclaimed to all men, and then the end will come. Romans eleven twenty five. 25, remember this one? A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. All those who might be saved. And Revelation 14, 6, just to double check, says that there will be an angel flying around in the sky proclaiming the gospel to people. God is going to leave no stone unturned when it comes to his grace. But to reject the gospel, to spit on God's salvation, to refuse his offer of forgiveness, to choose to bear the pain of hell alone, that is blasphemy of the highest order. Matthew 12, Jesus said that every sin will be forgiven men except for the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. To reject the gospel, to reject that drawing work of the Spirit who is always at work. Jesus said, I'll draw all men to myself. The Spirit is constantly trying to regenerate souls and bring them to salvation. To reject that is blasphemy. And for that reason, God will give them over to Satan's lies without his restraint. Now, this deception is already at work, as I've said before, but someday God is going to break the dam and it's going to be like a flood and the whole world will be given over to these things. Some have even speculated that if you rejected the gospel before the rapture, you will not have the opportunity to be saved after. I think that'd be taking it a little far because as I said, Revelation, God's going to raise up 144,000 Jewish witnesses that are untouchable that will be taking the gospel everywhere. And he'll have his evangelistic angels flying around too, which is pretty cool. But as it says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, in their case, the God of this world, little g God, talking about Satan here, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Have you ever heard a message preached where the gospel is laid out so plainly and your heart is stirred and you're broken and you're already saved, but you want to go forward again, you know? And then you see somebody sitting in the back like texting on the phone or something. And they're just, they walk away and it doesn't take more than five seconds for them to start joking and laughing and making crude humor again. And it's like, were you in there? Did you not hear that? Did you not hear the gospel? Their eyes have been blinded by the enemy. And someday it's going to increase. He also tells us here, the second sort of person, it's really all one, but who will be deceived by this. What kind of attitude would be so poisonous as to keep somebody from accepting the salvation of Jesus. He tells us. He says, In order that all may be contemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Valuing pleasure over truth exposes a person to spiritual deception. The Bible says this over and over again, and it almost seems like a disjointed connection that somebody who loves pleasure is somehow prohibited in their own flesh from coming to be saved. We say, why would that matter? Isn't this a spiritual thing? It's all connected. Philippians 3.19 says that if your God is your belly, your end is destruction. When pleasure of any kind is your God, so to speak, when everything else is subordinated to that, you begin to weigh everything by whether or not you will be able to continue to indulge that pleasure. If the gospel says I can keep doing that, fine, I'm down with Jesus. 
If he says, I can't do that, well, I'm not going to be listening to that anymore. Oh, I found this other philosophy, this other religion that lets me have my cake and eat it too, so I'm out of here. The love of sleep, the love of sex, of food. Don't kid ourselves. Gluttony is a sin. The love of applause, being known, being recognized, of intoxication through drugs or alcohol, through the, the knowledge of just being smarter than everybody, feeling superior, the pleasure of victory in whatever field you choose, the love of money, none of which, well, some of which, but many of those things, they're not evil in themselves. But the love of those pleasures will keep somebody from coming to Christ because the gospel demands everything. If you are obsessed with being known and being liked and being loved, Jeremiah 45 says, if you seek great things for yourself, seek them not. Jesus said, you must come and die on the cross with me if you want to be my disciple. We have prohibitions against so many sexual activities that the world calls normal. People come in and they say, well, if I can't do that, then no thank you. The love of pleasure. The gospel demands everything. Well, I shouldn't have to give that up. You have to give up everything. Jesus had a different thing to say to each person that came to him, depending on what was binding that person. Jesus didn't tell everybody, sell everything you have. He told the guy who had a greed and a covetousness problem, sell everything that you have. The guy that said, Lord, let me go and say goodbye to my father. He said, no, if you're going to keep looking back, you can't follow me. Because that guy's family, the love of that tradition and that, that unit and that affection that he got, that loyalty, was binding him, whatever it is. Consider how people will take any excuse to ignore Jesus, regardless of how good the excuse is. Have you seen that? As long as I have a reason to say no to Jesus, that's enough for me. People will just throw things out there that maybe have even been totally and thoroughly debunked. Well, the Bible was written thousands of years later. Like, you know that's been disproven, right? Ah, well, whatever. They're not interested because they found their excuse and that's all they want. They're going to take one way out, whatever it is. Well, Christians hate these people, and Christians don't like that, and they do. So I, I'm not interested in the gospel. We say, why would something so momentous you could just flippantly dismiss? This is the condemnation, as Jesus said in John 3. John 3, 19 through 20. This is the condemnation, the judgment. This is why God is going to judge people. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. You mean I've got to change? You mean I've got to fix not just the things that I want to fix, but the things I don't want to fix? Well, if God spoke to me, I'd listen. People loved the darkness rather than the light. God came down in human form and we nailed him to a cross. And the Jews told Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. You know what? We thought we wanted God. Turns out, we don't want God. We'll be our own God. And this is the thing. Gospel is free, but the gospel, in another sense, costs everything you have. It's the pearl of great price. It's the treasure hidden in a field. And when you know what you're getting, like Jim Elliott says it, you're no fool to give what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose, right? But if you're so focused on your pleasures, Jesus comes and said, that's what it's going to cost for you to be my disciple. Leonard Ravenhill, fiery guy, said, Christianity has not been weighed in the balance and found wanting. It has been tried, found difficult, and abandoned. You know, I do have to give. I have to die to myself? 
That's so, that's just so drizzly. Why do we got to talk about blood so much? Why do we got to talk about sin? I've got my own problems. I've got my own life. And we come in and say, how dare you in one sense? This is what your sin cost. I don't want to hear about blood and death and sin. That's what your sin deserves. That's what you're living in and wallowing in day by day. And when God stops striving with men, as the Lord said back in Genesis 6, my spirit will not always strive with men. You used to say that to your kids, didn't you? I'm not going to fight with you. The Lord said, I'm not going to always fight this fight. Their appetites will lead them to death. And that's the scary thing. It's not these profound arguments that keep people from coming to Christ. It's the fact that they've got something that they like doing and they just can't bear to give it up. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Oh, Lord. This is a prophecy of the tribulation. This is coming. This is later. The whole point of this chapter is that this is later. But every generation faces this deception. We face it with the blessed restraint of the Holy Spirit, and I thank God for that. But we still face this. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3-4. through 4. Tell me if this does not describe the days in which we live. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Accumulating for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. In a similar passage in the first letter to Timothy, chapter 4, verse 1, Paul told Timothy that this was the work of demons and deceitful spirits. The people will invent doctrines that are devil-inspired so that they can keep doing the sin that they want to do. Are we not seeing that exact thing today? You can go online and find any preacher to tell you anything you want to do so that you can disregard the godly people in your life who are calling you to repentance. I believe that we see this worldwide deception that is going to happen. I believe that we see this in miniature today in the United States. How can I say that? Because we fit the description that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy give us right here. We refuse to love the truth. We would rather invite false gods from everywhere else. The disdain for the gospel that has grown. The brazenness with which people will rail against the church, rail against God and his word, and yet will invite gods from India and these animist religions, and will go and pray to the earth. And will examine these murderous cults. And those are fine, but don't bring the gospel around here. And we take pleasure in unrighteousness and sin. And we will not sacrifice our pleasure for anything. Doesn't that describe America? Delighting in pleasure, worshiping their belly? Now listen, what I'm about to say here in the next few minutes, I know that it is easy to pick at the parts of society that you don't like. And sometimes it can be cheap to do that. And I can get up here and I can get a few cheap amens by pointing at the things that I know you all don't like. That said, 
There is a time when we need to turn and look full in the face of the wickedness that is all around us and not feel good that we're not part of it, but to be brokenhearted and driven to our knees for those that are around us so that we never pray lightly or preach lightly ever again. Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a priest's son, and God called him to go to the priests and tell them that everything they were doing was an abomination to the Lord. And he was a kid. Lord, I'm but a youth. I can't speak. I can't go to those people. You know, we have respect for elders, but back then it was, it was taken to an extreme. How dare you speak to somebody older than you like that? But this is the message that Jeremiah gave him to preach. And every time I read this verse, it, it burdens my heart for my own people. Jeremiah 2, 12 through 13. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You know, there are different ways of looking at the history of our country, and I don't want to dive into that, but there are a few broad things that I can say. When we came here, the Lord was our God. Even those that did not care for religion had to pay lip service to it because of the number of believers that had come here to escape persecution, to set up the city on a hill. And do you know what? The Lord blessed us mightily. You read through what the Lord told Israel he was going to do for them. God did that for us. He, he removed diseases from our midst. He gave us an abundance of children. Our wealth exploded. The Lord delivered our enemies into our hands. He gave us land that we had not owned, but he gave it to us. He gave us everything we could ever desire, and we have abandoned him. We have broken cisterns. There are lies that we have believed, and I can make this list for a thousand years, but I'm just going to look at three things that are connected. Cisterns that we have hewn out for ourselves, and we're trying to get water out of them. The first one is self-indulgence. We deny ourselves nothing. We have advertisements that tell us you should not deny yourself anything. We have psychologists that tell us if you do deny yourself something, it's bad for your mental health. Look at our food consumption. The amount of food that we eat and throw away. I, I, you know that something like 45% of people in our country are obese right now? That is gluttony. That is indulgence. That is the God is your belly. We indulge ourselves financially. We blow past all of the Lord's financial warnings and we drive ourselves into crippling debt so that we can pay for foolish little things and showy status symbols to make everybody think that we're rich and think that we're great. Whether we're not, we just want the illusion, the appearance of being something that Jesus actually warned us about. The drugs and the alcohol to feed our addictions. We'll go to the office to kill ourselves and die early of a heart attack in order to get a little bit more money, and then we come to church and we're going to complain because it runs late every, every now and then. Self-indulgent. This ties into the next one that really deserves its own category, which is sexual immorality. We are sex-crazed. We declare all sex to be good, and therefore it has opened up a whole world of unrighteousness. You don't like your marriage? Get a divorce. Why not? Go have sex with somebody else. The deviations have gotten weirder and weirder and weirder. 
And we need to affirm that boldly and without apology and not give this weird little protected status to some of these things. How it's gone from sleeping around to, with whoever you want to now sleeping with somebody of the same sex to now we're denying the existence of it entirely. You can be whatever you want and everybody else has to affirm it. Denying the existence of male and female. The desperate single parents that we, our heart goes out to them, but if, if the, the, they had not been engaged in that lie that sexuality is just something to be explored and enjoyed without, without consequence. And now we have these mothers mostly, but also these, these fathers. And then it leads to the 600,000 abortions we committed last year. So that we can continue to indulge our sexuality. And we come up with every excuse in the book, but there is blood on our hands. That's as many people as died in the Civil War, you guys. One year. And how do we justify all this? Well, I was going to say science, but it's really not science. It's what Paul, Paul calls falsely called knowledge, so we'll call it scientism. The belief that there is nothing other than what we observe. There is no God. There is no heaven. There is no afterlife. There is no spirit. There is only flesh. We deny God's existence, and thereby every human's worth is denied too. Because if God didn't create you, and you're just made of the same stuff that makes up the stars, oh, it's so pretty, you're also made of the same stuff that makes up the mud, and makes up the flies, and makes up that person who ravaged the world. So what makes you so special? People talk about humanity as a plague on the earth, because if there's nothing spiritual, then we're really bad for everything. So we become depressed, we become bitter. We shoot ourselves. We overdose to die on purpose. We take the lives of other people. People go into schools and blow away children and then take their own lives in disdain for existence and for life. And yet we still have the audacity to stand above God and those who worship God and say, look at those foolish people. What right has our nation to pray for mercy when we have squandered God's gifts like that? Can you not see how our own nation would be ripe for an antichrist? A ruler who holds himself up as divine and offers indulgence of every appetite and is able to consolidate and bring order and strength. The deceiver is already at work. And I have no prophecy about what's about to happen other than what's written right in front of you. But we seem to be only a, a breath away from another great push to destroy God's people. The darkness always tries to extinguish the light. We must understand this. And listen, I've talked many times about obsessing over these things. It will turn you into an angry, bitter person with no joy. But we must remember these things and not be deceived into thinking that everything's fine. Because if you look at everything that Paul says here about the deception coming upon the world, we check those boxes. You read through the Old Testament prophets and all the things that God judged Israel and Edom and Babylon and Assyria. We check those boxes too. So what is to be done? Is there no solution? Yes, there is. There is a solution, my friends. And guess what? It's you. And it's me. You and I are the instruments of the Holy Spirit to restrain wickedness and to delay judgment. I've heard this said so many times. And we all deserve a firm rebuke for ever thinking it. Well, things are so bad now, I guess the only thing left is the rapture. You do not have permission to take that attitude, Christian. Get your boots on 
and get out there. We think to ourselves, but it's never been worse than it is today. Maybe not here, but it has everywhere else. I shared this quote when we were going through the book of Acts. Dave Early, he's a pastor and a teacher, he said this about the book of Acts. He said, I look at the world and think, man, could it get any worse? Has it ever been any worse? And then I realize that the book of Acts was written during a time and about a time when the world was worse. Morality was worse. Values were worse. And yet a handful of people turned the world upside down. If they could do it, then by the grace of God, we can do it now. If I'm still here, then there's still work to be done. God is not finished. There are still many who may be saved. The fullness of the Gentiles has not come in yet. And so God can use us to spark a revival. But may I tell you, Christian, it is not going to come by shouting and indignant Facebook posts. Because you know what that is? And we laugh, but let me tell you what that is. That is allowing yourself to feel like you don't have any responsibility because you're on the right team. It's not my problem because I'm on the right side. And I can point them out and tell them what they're wrong and how they're wrong and what they did. And therefore, I'm, I'm taking a stand. No, you're not. Just disillusion yourself of that right now. That is not what you're called to do. That is easy victory. That is easy. Oh, well, I'm on the right team. Therefore, none of this has anything to do with me. Are you so, so cold? We can't be that cold. We're out here to save people. The world grows more brazen in its wickedness every day. And we have righteous anger towards that. But the solution is not to say, well, then forget it. You all do your thing. No way. Nor is it to soften ourselves as a church. This is a strategy that has been tried and shown that it doesn't work. So let's just abandon it. Maybe if we stop talking about the gospel so much. Maybe if we stop talking about blood and sin. Maybe if we took out some of those songs that are kind of offensive. What if we stopped talking about hot button issues and just made people feel good when they come into church? Look at the world. Let, let me give you a millennial's perspective on this. And I'm not being silly. I'm being serious. A millennial's perspective looks at people that soft pedal everything and want to go halfway and not really lean in. That, we despise that. We have no time for that. Look at the difference between the politics of the baby boomers and the generation after that to now. There is no middle ground. It's all intense. It's all in. So do you think the church is going to go halfway and be tapioca pudding and, and the world's going to go for that? No. As I used to tell my high school students, I always talk about, oh, radical religion, radical Islam. Radical, like, where are the radical Christians? What is a radical? A radical is somebody who actually believes this stuff. They give up everything and they throw themselves into their cause. We see radicals for every other stupid thing. People that chain themselves to the, the chicken factory because the, the poor chickens aren't given enough breathing room. Oh, it's hilarious. But what about the people that have been commissioned with the gospel of Jesus Christ that can't be bothered to go next door and tell their neighbor who's dying and going to hell that Jesus loves them? We march in the streets. We flip over cars. We set buildings on fire. But where's the church? You know what's happening is the young people in the church are getting attracted by the radicals for all these other things because the church has nothing to offer them. But you know what? We do have something to offer them. Mark 1.17, Jesus said, Come. Leave your nets and I'll make you fishers of men. Leave everything. Come follow me. Come die on the cross. That's an, that's an appeal that will get people's attention. Come die with us. You've got to die today because you know that that will catch people's attention. What are you talking about? 
And listen, the world has never been more aware of the injustice and the sin in every person's heart than right now. We say, oh, it's so ridiculous, cancel culture. But yeah, okay, yes, it is. But you know what? People are recognizing everybody's a big bunch of sinners and hypocrites. Yes, that's step one of the gospel. So we need to get out there and give them step two and step three and bring them to Jesus. And the world is not going to like it. We're talking with my family last night. It's different days now. The days are going to be different. The first message I ever preached at Calvary Chapel Trustville was called the church on defense because it's switching. We scored a lot of touchdowns in the 20th century. We had crusades and revivals in the Jesus movement and Billy Graham and mega churches. It was an awesome time. But then you kick off and the enemy gets the ball and now you've got to get out and play defense. And the way we're going to stand against that, Christian, is by leaning into what God has given us. Because when you have submitted your flesh to the Holy Spirit, the world cannot tempt you. When you've renounced everything that you have, the world can't bribe you. When you've humbled yourself before God, the world can't shame you. When you've caught a glimpse of heaven, the world can't threaten you. And when you understand the resurrection, the world can't even kill you. And there's nothing that anybody can do to stop people like that. Do we have to be on defense for a while? So be it. May God forge us into the soldiers that we need to be. And maybe you say, well, I'm, I'm feeble, I'm weak, I'm not up to the task. Perfect. Because God's strength is made perfect in weakness, he told Paul. Well, we're the weakest generation the church has ever known. Maybe that's because God is going to show his power like the world has never known. Well, things are too evil, it has to be the end. No way. The Lord could send revival today. We sing that song, if I'm not dead, then you're not done, right? But I will say this. <laughs> Let me give you an illustration from Scripture. 1 Samuel 14. The Philistines had invaded the land and Saul was king. And many of the Israelites had gone over to the Philistines to fight for them. And the rest of them were hiding in caves and hiding in holes and afraid to come out and fight. And Saul, the king of Israel, was standing on top of a mountain under a pomegranate tree praying. Oh, that's great. They're praying. Not so much. What do you need to pray for? The enemy's right there. You know what to do. Get out and fight somebody, Saul. No, we must stay. We must stay. And said the ephod was there, and they're praying under this pomegranate tree. And Jonathan, Saul's son, said to his armor bearer, you know what, let's go check out the enemy camp. They said, here's what we'll do. We'll go up close, and uh, if they say, bring it on, we'll know that God is has called us to defeat them by ourselves. And if they say, you best get out of here, we're coming for you, then we'll know that God has told us to go. That, that's called putting out a very serious fleece. <laughs> and he says, it might be that God will let us win the whole battle by ourselves. The armor bearer says, all right, I'm up for that. And they get up there, and it says they struck down like 30 people in that first instance. And then what happened? God sent an earthquake and scattered the Philistines. And there's Saul up there watching it happen, watching everybody run away. What's going on? Bring the, bring the priest. Let's, let's pray. We've got to find out what's going on. And they keep praying before the ephod until Saul finally said, forget it. Let's go. And that's what revival is like. The church is doing a lot of nice spiritual things. And they're all good. Nothing wrong with praying. Nothing wrong with the ephod. Nothing wrong with pomegranate trees. But when the enemy is advancing, and you've already got the word telling you what needs to be done, well, get going. And the Lord raises up people like Jonathan and his armor bearer who say, you know what, let's just go. Let's just try it. 
And this is what always happens when revivals break out. The denominations and the entrenched Christians watch this weird little thing going on in the beaches in Southern California. There's the, what's going on? All these hippies in the getting baptized. That's weird. Let's pray about that because I'm not sure. Let's pray about it and let's see. Or in the Methodist revival when they were, they're just going to go out and preach in the street. They're going to set up a little thing and they're going to preach to the coal miners going to and from the mines. That's weird. You can't preach outside of a church. And then the churches start filling up. Well, what are we going to do now? That, that's what happens. But it doesn't have to be that way. The Lord can pour out new wine today if we can remain supple and flexible in his hands. This is what we are to do, to be taking steps of faith to see if maybe this will be what God will use to start turning things around. Maybe this knock on this door will be the move that God will use to spark a new revival in our country. Maybe this outreach, maybe this Sunday morning, maybe this event that we're hosting. That's why we are constantly at work. And that's the only hope, really, right? God's intervention. The only hope for the whole world in this chapter is that Jesus is going to return. Because unless those days were shortened, all flesh would be destroyed. But Jesus is going to come back. In the same way, say, well, we've got a plan. Hey, plans are great. But what you need is the power of God, His Holy Spirit. And that's what I'm praying for. Because there's deception at work, and you've got the truth. And because we're still here, and the end has not come, and the Antichrist has not risen, we still have the antidote to Satan's deception. When the days get dark, the light shines brighter. We love the stories of Moses, right? Moses calling down plagues and running away from Pharaoh. But that, that might not have been as much fun to live through it. We love the stories of godly men, Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Oh, how wonderful. Lord, I want a life like that. Are you sure? I think you do. I think you are sure. I think you do want that. But I think you've got to be prepared for what that means. That we make the transition from civilian to soldier in the service of Jesus Christ. So we've seen what will happen in this, these passages. Christ will come to carry away his church at the rapture. The word, world will be deceived to follow the Antichrist. There will be seven years of great tribulation and trouble. And then Jesus will return to establish his kingdom for a thousand years. That's what's coming. The deceiver is already at work. And you've got to be on guard against his schemes. But until the trumpet sounds and the Lord says, come up here, the victory is certain. Isn't that amazing? Well, how do we know that God's going to use Romans 8.37, and all these things, we are more than what? Conquerors. You're a conquistador for Jesus. They can't stop you. The gates of hell will never prevail against God's church. So press the advantage, Christian. What does God need to do in your life to make you ready for this moment? At the very least, I hope that your heart is broken for your, your friends and your family and your neighbors and your co-workers who are sub susceptible to the deception that is coming. And I hope that you will take that message out because that's why we're still here. And until that mission is completed, the devil's not going to win. So be sobered, but be encouraged. Be set on fire. Get out there and see what the Lord is going to do.